0: Chapter 14 As the summer months advanced, the transformation of the Venetian palace into the modern hotel proceeded rapidly towards completion. The outside of the building, with its fine Palladian front looking on the canal, was wisely left unaltered. Inside, as a matter of necessity, the rooms were almost rebuilt, so far at least as the size and the arrangement of them were concerned. The vast saloons were partitioned off into apartments containing three or four rooms each. The broad corridors in the upper regions afforded spare space enough for rows of little bedchambers devoted to servants and to travelers with limited means. Nothing was spared but the solid floors and the finely carved ceilings. These, last in excellent preservation as to workmanship, merely required cleaning— and regilding here and there to add greatly to the beauty and importance of the best rooms in the hotel. The only exception to the complete reorganization of the interior was at one extremity of the edifice, on the first and second floors. Here there happened, in each case, to be rooms of such comparatively moderate size, and so attractively decorated, that the architect suggested leaving them as they were, it was afterwards discovered that these were no other than the apartments formerly occupied by Lord Mountbury on the first floor, and by Baron Revar, on the second. The room in which Mountbury had died was still fitted up as a bedroom, and was now distinguished as number fourteen. The room above it, in which the Baron had slept, took its place on the hotel register as number thirty-eight, with the ornaments on the walls and ceilings cleaned and brightened up, and with the heavy old-fashioned beds, chairs, and tables replaced by bright, pretty, and luxurious modern furniture, these two promised to be at once the most attractive and the most comfortable bedchambers in the hotel. As for the once desolate and disused ground floor of the building, it was now transformed— by means of splendid dining-rooms, reception-rooms, billiard-rooms, and smoking-rooms, into a palace by itself. Even the dungeon-like vaults beneath, now lighted and ventilated on the most approved modern plan, had been turned, as if by magic, into kitchens, servants' offices, ice-rooms, and wine-cellars, worthy of the splendor of the grandest hotel in Italy, in the now bygone period, of seventeen years since. Passing from the lapse of the summer months at Venice to the lapse of the summer months in Ireland, it is next to be recorded that Mrs. Rowland obtained the situation of attendant on the invalid Mrs. Carbury, and that the fair Miss Haldane, like a female Caesar, came, saw, and conquered on her first day's visit to the new Lord Mountberry's house. The ladies were as loud in her praises as Arthur Barville himself, Lord Mountberry declared that she was the only perfectly pretty woman he had ever seen who was really unconscious of her own attractions. The old nurse said she looked as if she had just stepped out of a picture and wanted nothing but a gilt frame round her to make her complete. Miss Haldane, on her side, returned from her first visit to the Mountberries, charmed with her new acquaintances. Later, on the same day, Arthur called with an offering of fruit and flowers for mrs Carbury, and with instructions to ask if she was well enough to receive Lord and Lady Mountbury and Miss Lockwood on the morrow. In a week's time the two households were on the friendliest terms. mrs Carbury, confined to the sofa by a spinal malady, had been hitherto dependent on her niece for one of the few pleasures she could enjoy the pleasure of having the best new novels read to her as they came out. Discovering this, Arthur volunteered to relieve Miss Haldane at intervals in the office of reader. He was clever at mechanical contrivances of all sorts, and he introduced improvements in Mrs. Carbury's couch and in the means of conveying her from the bedchamber to the drawing-room, which alleviated the poor lady's sufferings and brightened her gloomy life. With these claims on the gratitude of the aunt, aided by the personal advantages which he unquestionably possessed, Arthur advanced rapidly in the favor of the charming niece. She was, it is needless to say, perfectly well aware that he was in love with her, while he was himself modestly reticent on the subject, so far as words went. But she was not equally quick in penetrating the nature of her own feelings towards Arthur, "'watching the two young people with keen powers of observation, "'necessarily concentrated on them by the complete seclusion of her life. "'The invalid lady discovered signs of roused sensibility in Miss Haldane "'when Arthur was present, "'which had never yet shown themselves in her social relations "'with other admirers eager to pay their addresses to her. "'Having drawn her own conclusions in private, "'Mrs. Carbury took the first favourable opportunity— in Arthur's interests, of putting them to the test. "'I don't know what I shall do,' she said one day, "'when Arthur goes away.' "'Miss Haldane looked up quickly from her work. "'Surely he is not going to leave us,' she exclaimed. "'My dear, he has already stayed at his uncle's house "'a month longer than he intended. "'His father and mother naturally expect to see him at home again.' Miss Haldane met this difficulty with a suggestion, which could only have proceeded from a judgment already disturbed by the ravages of the tender passion. Why can't his father and mother go and see him at Lord Mountberry's? she asked. Sir Theodore's place is only thirty miles away, and Lady Barville is Lord Mountberry's sister. They needn't stand on ceremony. They may have other engagements, Mrs. Carbury remarked. "'My dear aunt, we don't know that. "'Suppose you ask Arthur?' "'Suppose you ask him?' "'Miss Haldane bent her head again over her work. "'Suddenly, as it was done, her aunt had seen her face, "'and her face betrayed her. "'When Arthur came the next day, "'Mrs. Carbury said a word to him in private "'while her niece was in the garden. "'The last new novel lay neglected on the table. "'Arthur followed Miss Haldane into the garden.' The next day he wrote home, enclosing in his letter a photograph of Miss Haldane. Before the end of the week, Sir Theodore and Lady Barville arrived at Lord Mountberry's and formed their own judgment of the fidelity of the portrait. They had themselves married early in life, and, strange to say, they did not object on principle to the early marriages of other people. The question of age, being thus disposed of— the course of true love had no other obstacles to encounter. Miss Haldane was an only child, and was possessed of an ample fortune. Arthur's career at the university had been creditable, but certainly not brilliant enough to present his withdrawal in the light of a disaster. As Sir Theodore's eldest son, his position was already made for him. He was two and twenty years of age, and the young lady was eighteen. There was really no producible reason for keeping the lovers waiting— and no excuse for deferring the wedding day beyond the first week in September. In the interval, while the bride and bridegroom would be necessarily absent on the inevitable tour abroad, a sister of Mrs. Carbury volunteered to stay with her during the temporary separation from her niece. On the conclusion of the honeymoon, the young couple were to return to Ireland, and were to establish themselves in Mrs. Carbury's spacious and comfortable house. These arrangements were decided upon early in the month of August, about the same date the last alterations in the old palace at Venice were completed. The rooms were dried by steam, the cellars were stocked, the manager collected round him his army of skilled servants, and the new hotel was advertised all over Europe to open in October. Chapter 15 Miss Agnes Lockwood to Mrs. Ferrari. "'I promised to give you some account, dear Emily, "'of the marriage of Mr. Arthur Barville and Miss Haldane. "'It took place ten days since, "'but I have had so many things to look after "'in the absence of the master and mistress of this house "'that I am only able to write you today. "'The invitations to the wedding were limited "'to members of the families on either side "'in consideration of the ill health of Miss Haldane's aunt, "'On the side of the Mountberry family "'there were present, besides Lord and Lady Mountberry, "'Sir Theodore and Lady Barville, "'Mrs. Norbury, whom you may remember "'as his lordship's second sister, "'and Mr. Francis Westwick and Mr. Henry Westwick. "'The three children and I attended the ceremony as bridesmaids. "'We were joined by two young ladies, "'cousins of the bride and very agreeable girls. "'Our dresses were white,' "'trimmed with green in honour of Ireland, "'and we each had a handsome gold bracelet "'given to us as a present from the bridegroom. "'If you add to the persons whom I have already mentioned "'the elder members of Mrs. Carberry's family "'and the old servants in both houses, "'privileged to drink the healths of the married pair "'at the lower end of the room, "'you will have the list of the company "'at the wedding breakfast complete. "'The weather was perfect, "'and the ceremony with music was beautifully performed.' As for the bride, no words can describe how lovely she looked or how well she went through it all. We were very merry at the breakfast, and the speeches went off on the whole quite well enough. The last speech before the party broke up was made by Mr. Henry Westwick and was the best of all. He offered a happy suggestion at the end, which has produced a very unexpected change in my life here. As well as I remember, he concluded in these words, "'On one point we are all agreed. "'We are sorry that the parting hour is near, "'and we should be glad to meet again. "'Why should we not meet again? "'This is the autumn time of the year. "'We are most of us leaving home for the holidays. "'What do you say, if you have no engagements that will prevent it, "'to joining our young married friends before the close of their tour "'and renewing the social success of this delightful breakfast?' By another festival in honour of the honeymoon. "'The bride and bridegroom are going to Germany "'and the Tyrol on their way to Italy. "'I propose that we allow them a month to themselves, "'and that we arrange to meet them afterwards "'in the north of Italy, say at Venice.' "'This proposal was received with great applause, "'which was changed into shouts of laughter "'by no less a person than my dear old nurse.' The moment mr Westwick pronounced the word Venice, she started up among the servants at the lower end of the room, and called out at the top of her voice, "Go to our hotel, ladies and gentlemen; we get six per cent. on our money already; and if you will only crowd the place and call for the best of everything, it will be ten per cent. in our pockets in no time; ask Master Henry." Appealed to in this irresistible manner, Mr. Westwick had no choice but to explain that he was concerned, as a shareholder, in a new hotel company at Venice, and that he had invested a small sum of money for the nurse—not very considerately, as I think, in the speculation. Hearing this, the company, by the way of humoring the joke, drank a new toast. Success to the nurse's hotel and a speedy rise in the dividend." When the conversation returned in due time to the more serious question of the proposed meeting at Venice, difficulties began to present themselves, caused, of course, by invitations for the autumn which many of the guests had already accepted. Only two members of Mrs. Carberry's family were at liberty to keep the proposed appointment. On our side, we were more at leisure to do as we pleased. Mr. Henry Westwick decided to go to Venice in advance of the rest, to test the accommodation of the new hotel on the opening day. Mrs. Norbury and Mr. Francis Westwick volunteered to follow him, and after some persuasion, Lord and Lady Mountberry consented to a species of compromise. His lordship could not conveniently spare time enough for the journey to Venice. But he and Lady Mountberry arranged to accompany Mrs. Norbury and Mr. Francis Westwick as far on their way to Italy as Paris." Five days since, they took their departure to meet their traveling companions in London, leaving me here in charge of the three dear children. They begged hard, of course, to be taken with Papa and Mamma, but it was thought better not to interrupt the progress of their education and not to expose them, especially the two younger girls, to the fatigues of traveling. I have had a charming letter from the bride this morning, dated Cologne, you cannot think how artlessly and prettily she assures me of her happiness. Some people, as they say in Ireland, are born to good luck, and I think Arthur Barville is one of them. When you next write, I hope to hear that you are in better health and spirits, and that you continue to like your employment. Believe me, sincerely your friend, A.L. Agnes had just closed and directed her letter when the eldest of her three pupils entered the room with the startling announcement that Lord Mountberry's traveling servant had arrived from Paris. Alarmed by the idea that some misfortune had happened, she ran up to meet the man in the hall. Her face told him how seriously he had frightened her before she could speak. "'There's nothing wrong, miss,' he hastened to say. "'My lord and my lady are enjoying themselves at Paris,' They only want you and the young ladies to be with them. Saying these amazing words, he handed to Agnes a letter from Lady Mountberry. "'Dearest Agnes,' she read, "'I am so charmed with the delightful change in my life. It is six years, remember, since I last travelled on the continent, that I have exerted all my fascinations to persuade Lord Mountberry to go on to Venice. And what is more to the purpose, I have actually succeeded.' "'He has just gone to his room to write the necessary letters of excuse "'in time for the post to England. "'May you have as good a husband, my dear, when your time comes. "'In the meanwhile, the one thing wanting now to make my happiness complete "'is to have you and the darling children with us. "'Mountberry is just as miserable without them as I am, "'though he doesn't confess it so freely. "'You will have no difficulties to trouble you,' Louis will deliver these hurried lines, and will take care of you on the journey to Paris. Kiss the children for me a thousand times, and never mind their education for the present. Pack up instantly, my dear, and I will be fonder of you than ever. Your affectionate friend, Adela Mountbury. Agnes folded up the letter, and feeling the need of composing herself, took refuge for a few minutes in her own room. Her first natural sensations of surprise and excitement at the prospect of going to Venice were succeeded by impressions of a less agreeable kind. With the recovery of her customary composure came the unwelcome remembrance of the parting words spoken to her by Mountbury's widow, "'We shall meet again, here in England, or there in Venice, where my husband died, and meet for the last time.'" It was an odd coincidence, to say the least of it, that the march of events should be unexpectedly taking Agnes to Venice after those words had been spoken. Was the woman of the mysterious warnings and the wild black eyes still thousands of miles away in America? Or was the march of events taking her unexpectedly, too, on the journey to Venice? Agnes started out of her chair ashamed of even the momentary concession to superstition which was implied by the mere presence of such questions as these in her mind. She rang the bell and sent for her little pupils and announced their approaching departure to the household. The noisy delight of the children, the inspiriting effort of packing up in a hurry, roused all her energies. She dismissed her own absurd misgivings from consideration with the contempt that they deserved. She worked as only women can work when their hearts are in what they do. The travelers reached Dublin that day in time for the boat to England. Two days later, they were with Lord and Lady Mountberry at Paris. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.